The thing about growing up in a home that values not needing help is that you get really good at being alone and not asking for anything, but you don't actually ever learn how to feel better. Welcome to Therapy is My Therapy, a podcast where licensed counselor Olivia and unlicensed client Tanya delve deep into real and raw conversations in order to demystify what really happens in that 50-minute hour. Heads up, this podcast contains strong language and sensitive topics related to mental health. Hey everyone, this is Tanya. So this episode is called Slow on the Intake because Olivia had pointed out that we had spent no time introducing ourselves. Who we are, our own personal mental health journey, and why you should care about what we have to say. So as a result, we recorded this episode, and we had a blast laughing at the chaos that ensued during the most cursed recording ever. And also, we spent a lot of time talking about Olivia's backstory. We got into how she realized she wanted to become a therapist, how she realized she needed therapy, her own healing journey, and most importantly, what are her icks when viewing the profiles of her own potential new therapist. Lastly, apologies for the slight distortion in the audio. However, it's only noticeable in certain parts. So with that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode. So if you wanted to talk about what were the events in your life that ended up with you on honestly either sides of the therapist couch? So my immediate thoughts when that question started popping up of what do you want to be when you grow up? The idea of being in the psychology field made a lot of sense to me because my perception at the time of what it was like being a therapist was that you give advice and listen to people's problems. And that was something I did all the time as a kid. Looking back, I can see that it was very strange for an 11-year-old to be viewing that as her best quality or skill. But I think it was something that just made the most sense to me. I was the kid in school that always on the report card was like a pleasure to have in class, like so kind to everyone else. They would always put me next to the quote unquote bad kids because they knew that I would encourage them to do their work and not be mean to them. So I think I was put in that role very early of, well, you are a person who can listen and hold space for others, which is very damaging to feel as a child that your main use to the world is to help everyone else. In my slow on the intake episode, I would talk about various things that happened and Olivia brilliantly provided a professional clinical insight as to what these meant. And unfortunately, since I don't have any clinical experience in this case, I might have to ask you to provide your hypothesis or your take on some of these things because some things stuck out to me. Like, why did the teachers have you do their job? right? Because it's that balance of how do I cultivate this wonderful skill in this person, but also assigning a child, this is now your role, this is who you are, might not be the healthiest, as you had mentioned. I think everything was very well-meaning from the adults in my life of, well, you're mature, you're an old soul, that kind of pipeline. So I think that they meant it as a compliment of like, you are a kid that we can trust to do our job. And that was something I took as a great honor back then because I wanted to be viewed as someone who was responsible and mature and someone who didn't need help. I had grown to learn that not needing help was a strength and that if you didn't need anybody, you were safer. So I think that was something that very much played into that of like at school, I was doing everything really well. 
I had the best grades. I was involved in everything. I helped the other kids. And then I would come home and life was just absolute chaos. And so I think it was very difficult at the time. It felt like being split of like, okay, I go here and I'm just in this bubble of everything can be perfect here. I can be in control here. And then I would go home and everything was just out of control. Yeah, I hear that old soul thing a lot. And apparently it usually just leads to burnout from what I gather with kids because you want to make the adults happy and it feels good, right? So you just try to do more and more. And and I imagine it, it's a good thing to cultivate in a child, but also to, you know, adults jobs or to teach them things like self-regulation where you're like, okay, we need you to slow your roll a little bit just because you're going to burn yourself out and you don't even know it. Yeah. And I, I didn't learn how to fail or that making mistakes was okay. And that caught up to me later in life. But that definitely played a role in me wanting to enter a helping profession because I viewed it as my purpose. And as this is my role as a human is I help other people at the sake of myself. There were times where I would be nice to the kids who were getting bullied and would try to stand up for them. And then that would get me bullied. And so it was like that very early learning of, well, as long as you're helping somebody else, it's okay if you're sacrificing your own well-being. Yeah, and that's a very societal message, especially in, you know, a Judeo-Christian country. And among Chinese, too, where you don't matter, it's the collective that matters. So I don't want it to be gory details of your household and how it was chaos, but I'd be interested in hearing what therapeutic skills did you learn and however much detail you feel comfortable getting into what were the scenarios where you had to cultivate these skills? I'm trying to think about a way to say it in a way that is concise and also accurate. Because I think my childhood had a lot of nuance to it in a way that makes it very difficult to talk about it. Because I think that both of my parents did the best that they could. That showed up very differently for both of them. And as an adult, it's way easier to understand the complexity of that. And to recognize that me saying that they did the best they could is not excusing the times that they didn't show up for me. It's more recognizing that I don't think either of them intended to cause harm. The way that my role looked in the family was of the person who pointed out the elephant in the room. I have never been good at faking things or ignoring information or behavior. And so... I was very much the person as a kid that would say, hey, I don't like the way that you're talking to me. Or why are you treating my mom like that? That's not okay. Or, hey, no one's talking at the dinner table. All I'm hearing is forks clinking against the plates. What's that about? And that very much isolated me in the sense that everyone else in the family, I think at the time, wanted to pretend that there was nothing wrong, which is fair and I was not comfortable with that mentality. I didn't want to sweep anything under the rug. I wanted to address everything with the goal of it being fixed. And so I think that particular skill is very useful as a therapist of broaching uncomfortable topics and giving a name to things that usually happen in the subconscious. So I think that is definitely something that transferred well, but in the sense of things that maybe were difficult, like I said, I learned that well, I thought I had learned that I was capable of controlling the energy in the room and that if I maintained that control, things would be okay. And that was not a good lesson to learn, but it was something that at the time I think felt necessary for me to survive the environment. 
But as an adult, that is not functional. I gather those who point out that the emperor has no clothes tend to get punished or at least ostracized, even in one's own family. And in order to provide insight, how do we, as a, say, a family system, come to establish that we ignore these things? It, it can be a multifactorial sort of situation, right? I'd, I'd be very curious as to why the hell do we do this sometimes? I think it's a lot of self-preservation of that sense of I can ignore short-term discomfort so that long-term I don't have to Actually, that's it's kind of backwards, but I think that's what people think. I think what it really is, is that no one's thinking about the long-term consequence of it. They're thinking short-term, I can avoid discomfort by not bringing this thing up. Also, a lot of it is just that the generations before us viewed marriage as a thing that you had to be in forever. And so I think when you view that in that context, you have no choice but to ignore issues that don't seem fixable. Because the alternative is leaving. And I think especially when you have kids involved, that is a very difficult decision to make. So I think that's the case for a lot of family dysfunction is that it feels like opening a can of worms. Once you point out that dad's mad and mom's scared and no one's talking and we're just eating in silence, you can't unknow that. But the way I thought about it was like, well, we already know already. We all know what's going on here. You don't have to be fighting for us to know that things are bad. And so for me, it was just more harmful that it wasn't talked about because it felt like it wasn't existing. That's immensely brave. That is remarkable. And I'm sure I had that trait more prominent in me as a kid. I think all kids do. That's one of the brilliant things is that they're very in their bodies. They're just these little bundles of emotions and, and honestly, truth. And as you grow up, things can get shaped or they can get twisted. So that makes sense. And from a clinical standpoint, what did you think was going on and possibly what do you think you needed as a kid? I think that what happened was that everyone in the family fell very strictly into their roles because there was so much chaos going on that it was just this dance that no one could get out of. Okay, my dad's the aggressor and he's very controlling and authoritative and my mom is probably the most pure person on this earth and truly hates conflict. She's obviously learned over the years how to navigate it way more effectively. But I think back then she wanted to avoid conflict at all costs. And that made me have to not avoid it. I think my brother was very similar to my mom in that he was just a kid wanting to keep the peace because what kid wants to hear yelling and screaming and fighting? And I was like, well, I'd rather have yelling and screaming and fighting than us pretending nothing's happening. So I think that dance of chaos kept us all very strictly in these roles that didn't allow for any quote unquote lesser, but truthfully more important needs to be met because everything was focused on like, okay, we just need to get through the day. I would wake up in the morning and ask my mom, like, is dad going to be in a bad mood today? So that was the focus of the family. We were all just doing what the solar system does and like going through space, spinning very quickly. And there was no time to like stop and smell the roses. And I think because of that, a lot of my other needs went unmet. I was a very weird kid and I preferred to spend most of my time alone outside daydreaming. And I had a lot of very neurodivergent traits that I think weren't recognized because there was too many quote unquote bigger things going on. So I think what I would have needed would have been there to be more space for the everyday experiences that I think would have picked up on patterns 
and allowed me to better understand as a kid why I was feeling so different than everybody else. Thank you for sharing that. And like I said, you let me know how you want to shape this too, because it is hard finding that balance, especially as the mental health professional in this is that obviously you can speak candidly about it, but it's how candidly and in what way. I think it's important to share these things because people need to know that therapists are also humans who've been through things, but also being mindful of it's not a therapy session. But just in general, that's something that has been difficult my whole life is that when you're born into trauma to differentiate behaviors that are coming from that versus other areas. There were probably three years in a row where every morning before school, my mom and I would be screaming at each other for an hour because I didn't like the way my socks felt. And I was like, they're not lined up right. I cannot wear these. Please, dear God, don't let me wear jeans. I'm pretty sure I wore the same outfit all of sixth grade and I would sneak around the house in the morning before going to the bus so my mom wouldn't see that I was wearing it again because it was the only thing that felt comfortable. And I think that was just easily attributed to like, oh, well, there's a lot going on. She's having a hard time with change naturally because there's all this other stuff happening that like, that's why she's struggling. She probably doesn't want to go to school because kids are mean. And I'm like, well, yeah, that was also true. But I think a lot of my sensory needs and other neurodivergent shit just got swept aside and unnoticed because it was way easier to attribute it to the trauma that was happening. And I imagine that even in terms of physical health, right, where a broken arm is very easy to like, okay, we have an idea as the event that caused it. We know what this is. We know what to do. Whereas behaviors, it's very hard to completely trace the line and also to delineate what is neurodivergent behavior, for example, or what is a very stressed out little girl that wants to control aspects of her life. And like you said, why can't it be both? And yeah, even as an adult looking back at it now, it's, I don't know if you have a mix of, it was right there. It's so simple, but also, holy crap, you had a lot going on. Cause as I become an adult, there's so much in my brain right now to think about that. I don't even know how my mom put food on the table. Cause you've got 800 million things in your mind and adulting is hard. Yeah. Have you seen the Netflix show, The Haunting of Hill House? I'm scared of spooky movies. Me too. Okay, good. It's like the only scary thing I'll watch. So it's like this family that grew up in a haunted house and tragedy happens. And then it jumps ahead to the kids as adults and how they're handling the haunted house they grew up in. Watching that show, it very much felt like my childhood of living in a haunted house where even if there's not ghosts jumping out at you at the moment, There's always the fear that there might be one the next corner. And so living in that level of chaos is not just hard for the kids, but for the adults who are like, when I think about navigating my trauma as it is, I cannot imagine if there were little kids following me around, modeling everything I do, needing to be fed and everything else. Like, I don't know how parents do it. On one hand, recognizing like, yeah, of course they didn't see it. My mom was just trying to hold our house together. There's no way it's easy to notice those things when you are in survival mode. And then at the same time, there's this feeling of like, how did you not see this? There's a scene in The Haunting of Hill House where the one little girl who's like the most haunted from everything. There's a scene where like she goes missing and they're like all looking for her and then they find her and she's like, I was right there the whole time. How did you not see me? I was screaming and yelling. I was right there. How did you not see me? And that's what it felt like a lot that like it was just ships passing in the night. All of the things were right out there on a silver platter, but they were just missed. 
And as an adult, it's been way easier to understand why that happened and to be able to give a lot of grace and gentleness to like my poor mother who was just trying to survive. But as a kid, it was very difficult to feel like there was only space for the huge problems. The angry philosopher Bill Burr, he talked on a podcast about his trauma and how he said that he believes that a lot of adults forget how small a kid's world is. Because an adult, I have to go to work, I go to the pharmacy, I go to here, there, this, that, I interact, and my world is so much bigger. I'm aware of so much more. Whereas a kid, it's a house, it's a school, and things that happen are small. To an adult in a very large world, they're very small. But to a a child who only has a couple years on this planet, and this is their whole world, it can be the biggest thing that they've ever seen. And because of that difference in perspective, I think it's important for adults to contextualize. And also it amplifies because a scary situation with, say, your dad, that's so much scarier when you're three feet tall. And not that your mom wrote it off, but it's just to keep that in mind of this is scary for me. It must be so much more intense. And God, childhoods, childhoods, man, fucking childhoods. Oh, yeah, they're they're brutal. They are brutal. I think they're brutal even for kids in healthy homes. It's just like you're literally you are learning how to exist while your parents are learning how to parent. They're both completely new experiences. Like being a human and being a parent are like the two hardest things to be. I think about that job now and I'm like, man, I don't know if I'm cut out for that. But anyways, yeah, I would love to hear how you ended up in therapy as a civilian, as I call it, or as a therapist. We can talk about what did you tell yourself when you were avoiding therapy or what what was the moment when you realized you needed therapy? I avoided therapy for quite a while. I mean, as a child, it was used as a threat of if you don't get your act together, you have to go to counseling and they're going to tell you all the things wrong with you. So it wasn't actually ever offered as an option. It was used as a threat only. So I don't know what would have happened if they had offered it to me as truly a way for support. I didn't even really consider it as something to do until college when I was in my undergrad in psychology and learning all these things. And at that point, I obviously had the mindset of, oh, well, now I know everything about this. So I don't need someone else to tell me because I can just do all this research on it myself and figure out how to help myself. And that did not fly. And also at the time, like I didn't really have the financial ability to be in therapy. I knew from friends that the counseling services at our school were really not helpful. So I didn't bother trying that. So the first time I tried it was through my mom had EAP services as part of her job. So what that is basically mostly larger companies, but they'll offer employee assistance services where it's basically a program that you get allotted a certain amount of free counseling sessions for you or your family members. So that was my first exposure to it. And it wasn't great. The therapist was, I think, much more of like a let me just give you skills. And so he was just like, well, have you tried yoga? Here's this anxiety worksheet. And I was like, bro, are you kidding me? I could go get this at school. So that was not great. It was very discouraging. And so what finally actually got me to that point of seeing a therapist was I recognized that the financial aspect of it was not a good enough reason. And again, I was able to get free services. So that helped me get there. But just in general, I realized, well, I have to find a way to make this work, even if it costs money, because I need this. And at the time, I was in a long-term relationship, and I had, I think, just recently at that point found out that my boyfriend was using heroin. 
And so that was a, a big moment for me of, okay, I, I got to get help because my friends aren't going to be able to help with this. My family's not going to be able to help with this. I have no idea what to do now. So naturally, I started signing up for classes about substance abuse and figured I could get a therapist too and just double whammy it and figure it out that way. Yeah, no, that is above most people's pay grades. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about why the physician heal thyself thing doesn't work, because I, I get the feeling that even therapists are not immune to, I know my own mind, I can fix myself. So I'd love to hear your, your perspective on it. There's been research done that shows that knowledge of health does not correlate with health. So just because you are a doctor or a therapist or a teacher or a nurse or whatever, that does not mean that your knowledge is going to make you healthy. Oftentimes, I think that's a systemic issue that people in helping professions either don't make a lot of money or don't have much work-life balance. And that makes it incredibly difficult to put into place the practices that you know are helpful. And also, I think we've talked about in previous podcasts, self-awareness doesn't mean that you're going to heal. I can know that my leg is broken, but that's not going to get me to magically feel better. You have to still do the work. And it's really hard to do the work by yourself because there's no accountability and there's no mirror of it. Personally, I really need other people's points of view to be able to see problems more fully because I have a very all or nothing mindset. My brain does not like gray areas. And so I view things automatically as good or bad. And so I really need another perspective to be like, well, have you considered this? And also, like, even if I know what tools there are, having someone walk me through them and get me into routine of them or suggest things that I maybe wouldn't have thought of for that area. Like, there's just so many reasons why, as a therapist, I need a therapist. And so I think that's something that, thank God I did. We were very much encouraged in grad school to seek our own therapy if we hadn't yet. And that's exactly why, like, you can't do it yourself just because you know the info. And also, how can you expect clients to sit in front of you and be vulnerable if you have never put yourself in that position? I've encountered the occasional therapist and it is frustrating when you go, hey, you don't walk the walk. So it's very hard to talk the talk. And okay, I recall your first session with the anxiety workbooks and just do yoga. Were there other therapists after that? And a first, I don't say a real session, but I don't know if your first session with the, maybe the therapist that you currently see or the first one that really made an impact for you and just didn't hand you a, a DBT workbook or something. Yeah. So the first therapist that was really helpful for me was during grad school. I didn't really try much after the one in undergrad. It didn't really feel like he understood what I needed. And I was too scared to really tell anyone what was going on, even a therapist, because it just felt like I was worried that they were going to tell me to leave the relationship. At the time, it did not feel like a feasible option because I felt like I was holding someone else's life in my hands. And I didn't want to go to a therapist and have them tell me, well, you should leave because I knew that and I knew it didn't feel like an option for me. So it wasn't until I was in grad school and that was no longer the presenting problem that I really felt like I was able to show up and be willing to learn and to be the client. And so my first session with her was very comforting because at the time I was very invalidating about the things that I had been through. And she asked if I had a history of trauma. And I remember saying something along the lines of, well, kind of. I don't know if you'd really call it trauma, but my dad did this and this. And then in college, I got robbed. And then my boyfriend died. 
So like kind of, but like I didn't, you know, like no one was like really like beating on me as a kid. And like I was so invalidating of the things I had been through. And she was just flabbergasted. She's like, what do you mean? That's the definition of trauma. I at the time did not know how to identify with that. And so it was a really nice experience of having someone just sit there and be like, what you've been through is terrible and look at how much you've been able to accomplish in spite of it. And also, you don't have to be fighting so hard. You don't have to be trying so hard to prove these things. You can just be. Yeah, for me, that's an idea that I'm still grappling with. I can just exist as a person and that's enough and that's okay. I don't understand, but okay. And why is it so hard for us to identify what is trauma? Because even me, I'm like, I don't know, I got the shit beat out of me and kids were horrible. I cut myself. Okay. It's girly things, you know? <laughs> that's, that's girl math. That's girl math. Like, what? Well, <laughs> this is fine. It's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I, I don't understand why you're here talking with me, even though I sat in this office and did this. But why are we the way that we are? And then I have some follow-up questions after that. People look at the word trauma and think of war, natural disasters, blatant abuse, car accident. And those are, as we've talked about before, big T traumas, but little T traumas, meaning consistent neglect or rejection, bullying, microaggressions, breakups, things like that are just as much, if not more harmful to our mental health than one incident of a big T trauma because they are chronically proving to you that the world is not safe. And so I think that's why people have a hard time viewing them and categorizing them as trauma, because it's like, well, I didn't go through this, so mine isn't as bad. I should just deal with it. This happens to people all the time. And for me, that was really hard because I was in session with clients hearing horrible, inhumane things happening that were way worse in theory than things that I had been through. And so it felt wrong to complain. I'm kind of curious in maybe in that therapy or, or throughout therapy, what skills did you learn to identify that, hey, this thing in my life, it is trauma and the steps to be with it? I think I learned a lot about self-soothing and emotional regulation that I was very bad at and still struggle a lot with. The thing about growing up in a home that values not needing help is that you get really good at being alone and not asking for anything, but you don't actually ever learn how to feel better. I think you learn not to feel, and that's how you remain independent, right? Of like, well, I don't want anyone else to have to soothe me because then what if they leave or what if they use that against me later? But there's like a in-between Right. Like we don't want to rely entirely on another person, but we also like are wired to be around other people and to allow yourself support. So I think that was something I had a really hard time discerning. And so the number one thing I learned that was helpful in identifying that I had been through trauma and then learning how to work through it was that skill of saying what it was, naming the feeling and then saying, OK, how can I regulate this emotion so that it is not controlling me? Because I would vacillate between so numb and shut off and dissociative that I just didn't feel a thing or so deeply anxiously attached to anything. 
I would literally cry from the second I woke up to the second I fell asleep. It would be on the way to work. And literally, I would take ice packs from my lunch and put them under my eyes so that no one would know I'd been crying. The second I'd get in the car again, it would be back to sobbing. And like, I felt like those were the only options was to feel everything or nothing. So I think what she taught me was that there is a middle ground and that if I can learn tools to regulate that and really feel it rather than just letting it run the ship, it gave me such a better handle on the hard things that I had been through. And it didn't magically solve them or make them go away. It just gave me a space to feel them in a way that I wasn't drowning in them. I'm wondering for myself, I've been through enough therapy where I kind of, I know the right thing to say and I know the honest thing to say. I don't know if you experience that, especially as you go through school. I imagine people do that. And I was wondering if there were any other cut the shit moments that are noteworthy, especially because, again, it's, it's not actually versus therapist, but it's therapist versus therapist in the sense of, I know what you're doing. I know you know what you're doing and so on and so forth. I'm very curious how that dynamic plays out versus me as a therapy white belt, right? Yeah, it's very interesting being a therapist in therapy. And at the time, I was still a student when I started with that therapist, which I think was preferable because I've had the issue with other therapists where because I also am one, they, they treat me a little differently. I think they assume I know things or there's a little bit too much of buddy-buddy of not viewing me as a person who needs help. Not that I want to be condescended. Obviously, I know a lot of the stuff that they're going to share, but that doesn't mean I know how to integrate it and that I don't need help. And so being a student at that point still was very helpful, but there would still be moments where I would have a reaction or I would say something that was clearly a therapist thing to say of like, well, I know I should be doing this because of this. And she was very quick to just give me the look. And with her, I did a lot of the like inner child parts work. I think that helped because there would often be a question of, okay, you know that, but do they know that? Do those younger parts of yourself know that? What do they need from you that you're not giving them? So I think that was very neutralizing in a very helpful way. Just because I as an adult might know things on an intellectual level, that does not mean that my body knows it. And it does not mean that I know how to apply it in situations where I'm feeling activated or triggered. Because I think that's something that I've had a very hard time with over the years, that inner turmoil of I know the things I should say and do when I'm in conflict or when I'm feeling scared or abandoned or whatever. And then the moment comes and my body's just like, nope, we're out. Good luck. Yeah, that leads me to my other question is that does the academic knowledge or clinical knowledge help or hinder you as you progress along your healing path? But you explained it perfectly. Your brain might know, but body has very different plans. And it's surprising, but not surprising in regards to the buddy, buddy idea where like, ah, y you know what, you know what to do for me. You got this. Again, it's another layer to it that the rest of us don't really think about. And I'm kind of curious, what's your therapist count? I think five or six. What were the reasons that it took that many times to find the right one? So I was getting bumped around a lot after the one that was really helpful once COVID hit. And I don't know if there were things going on in her own life or if just the issues that I was going through at the time were no longer something that she was super helpful with, but it started to just feel not productive. I think I was reaching a point where I was having a lot of existential questions, particularly about being alone versus being in a relationship. At the time, I didn't feel like it was possible for me to be in a healthy relationship. And I was committed to just being by myself. And I was very much questioning, well, what does healthy actually mean? And 
I don't think that she, I don't know if she didn't understand where I was coming from, but I think she was in a happy relationship at the time and I was going through a breakup. So I don't know that it was super effective because I was very much deconstructing everything about relationships and how I think most of them were shit. I don't know if that was something she was capable of dealing with at the time. Were you bumming out your therapist? (laughs) I think so. I think so. Oh my God, just killing my vibe. I had said, I was like, I feel like the only way I've ever gotten over people in the past is by eventually just dating somebody new. And she was like, well, what's wrong with that? And I was like, I need to be okay on my own. I don't want to only move on because someone new is taking my attention. I want to move on by myself. And that wasn't something that was clicking for her. I think she did her best to like try to understand where I was coming from, but I was so (laughs) negative at the time. And I stand by it. At that moment, I decided when she like wasn't getting it, I was like, now you're really making me double down. I'm going to prove this. And that was when I decided I was like, I'm just going to be single for as long as I possibly can until it would literally be stupid not to. Unless I find a person who is such a great fit for me that I would be an idiot to not try. I'm just going to be by myself. And that's what I did. I stand by everything I said. I proved to myself that you can get over somebody and move on without needing someone new. But yeah, I think that was where that kind of fell apart. I just wanted to say that's an amazing therapist breakup story where you were killing her vibe too much and then you had to be petty in in the best. I mean that as a compliment, the most wonderfully petty. You're like, no, I'm doing this. We're doubling down. Maybe it was a Mr. Miyagi moment where she knew if she poked at me enough, I'd do it. She might be playing 5D chess. Long game. Very long game. I like it. That did really empower me to be like, you don't get it and that's fine, but I get it. And it, it, it was almost like this moment of like, I'd been working with her, I think two years at that point. And I was like, I think that I have not leveled up from her in the sense that, oh, now I'm above her. But like she took me as far as she could take me on the path. And what I needed beyond that, I don't know if she was capable of giving because she was so helpful with all the inner child stuff. And then when it came to the more like present issues rather than the traumas, more just the like, okay, well, how do I be in a healthy relationship now? How do I deal with the stuff that is coming up in my day to day? I think that was maybe harder. So after her, I bounced around to four therapists in like two years and they all just kind of were like passing me to the next person and giving me different diagnoses of like, well, I think that you have OCD, so you should go talk to this person. And then I talked to them and they'd be like, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's ADHD. No, I don't think it's that. I think it's just trauma. You should go do EMDR. And then I went to an EMDR therapist and she was horrible. We didn't even get to the EMDR. She talked about herself so much. I was like, I don't need to know this about you. Why do I know that you had a complicated relationship with your mother and she has now died? I should not know that. I'd love to hear more tea, but we have to make it educational. Why is that not great? Several reasons. There is like conversation about some self-disclosure can be productive and helpful if it's done intentionally and you're really thinking through the function of it is that it's going to help the client and that it's not for your own benefit. But in that case of like really self-disclosing all this info about yourself, I think a lot of times it's done to be relatable of like, oh, I've been through stuff too, or I totally get what it's like to have parents that didn't show up for you. And that is so invalidating when you have one hour that's yours, especially when you're a therapist and every other hour is about listening. And they can't just shut up and hear you and not make it about them. At least for me, the second someone starts telling me what's going on with them, I just wall up and I'm like, okay, 
it's not about me. I'm in therapist mode. I have to listen to you. I'm going to shut off my own feelings. And that is not conducive to a therapy session. Right. Do you invoice them at the end? I should have. I should have asked for a discount. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I can imagine, especially when you have that one 50 minute hour and this is your time. And that must be frustrating. And also the reflex to get into therapist mode, not that it's uncontrollable, but it is strong. And you spend your whole time fighting that and being not met the way that you need in the therapy session. And as a therapist, you know what they need to do and you're not doing the thing, other therapy person. But these are pretty epic reasons for stuff not working. And I'm just picturing her going like, we should text him. Let's text him. What should I say? Can you help me write this text? So you didn't even get to the EM. EMDR. So I was going to ask, did it work? But we don't know. And your current therapist. So I'm actually in the process of switching because I've been out of it for a little while just due to logistical reasons. But I'm in the process of starting with someone new who does do EMDR. So hopefully that actually happens this time and I can report back. But yeah, it was a lot of a lot of tries with people. And I'm a very big advocate of like, you really need a good fit with your therapist, because if you don't trust them, you're not going to open up. What are you looking for in a therapist right now? Not details, but how do you go about doing it? That's a good question. It's really hard because I, I think it's hard when you know a lot about therapy because everything feels like a red flag. And a lot of times it's not. It's just people's descriptions on their websites sound really cheesy a lot of times, but that turns me off. But then I'm like, well, you need to give it a chance because they might not be like that in person. So for me, it's a lot about the energy of them when I have the consultation or like what things they specialize in. But really what I'm looking for in terms of the human is someone who is going to treat me as a client, not as a fellow therapist, and be able to be gently challenging and authentic and not sound like a doctor. Because I think I've had that where there are some therapists who just really take themselves super seriously. And that does not vibe with me. Beyond that, it's mostly just how they speak to me. If it's someone that I feel like is able to hold heavy things, which you'd think every therapist would be able to do, but they can't. I'm generally pretty good at judging people's energy. My dad calls me an authenticity detector. Usually from like the first time I talk to someone, I can get a gist of if there's someone I'll be a good fit with. So it's a little intangible, but that's generally how I go about it. What's the equivalent of man holding up fish on dating profile for a therapist? (laughs) That's so good. Oh, there's so many. Um, When their bios are all in the form of a question, it'll be like, Are you struggling with how to deal with life's everyday problems? Do you wish that you had better skills to regulate? And I'm just like, it gives me the ick right away. Let's see what else. Oh, when they have 90 specialties listed. And I'm like, that's not possible. A specialty is by definition special. Three max. If you have more than that, I'm concerned. It's tough because the like Psychology Today profile like allows you to click lots of different things. So it's different if you're just saying these are issues I work with. Oh, I work with a lot of different disorders. That makes sense. That's your job. But if you're like, I do seven different theories, that doesn't make sense. You're supposed to like use the theory to conceptualize the case. So if you're using all of these, you probably either don't know them well enough or you're just trying to appeal to every single client out there to make sure you get a caseload. And that feels icky to me. Those are my fish pictures. I think I know them intuitively, not the specialty one, but definitely the questions. Because even me, I'm just like, oh. So when did you start to have those wax on, wax off moments where you go, I'm doing the thing? As a therapist or as a client? Uh, You could do both because you have both perspectives. 
I think as a therapist, it was when I found my specialty areas. Once I started working with neurodivergent clients and working with people who were dealing with boundary issues and healthy relationships and those kinds of areas that felt like a really good fit for my skills, I started feeling like, oh, okay, I get it now. Like it's, I get how it's supposed to work. I was able to see more how the skills that we learned in class actually applied in real life. Because when you're learning them at school, like you're reading these little vignettes about a case and it's so cut and dry of, they present with anxiety and you tell them this and they're all better now. And it's just so unrealistic that I think it didn't really click until I started working with clients who I was like, okay, you, you think that I'm a good fit for you. And that allows me to just be because I don't feel like I need to try to fit a certain thing. You chose me because you liked what I had to offer you. And that gave me permission to just be more authentically myself in session. So I think that for me was the moment where things really started to click and feel like, okay, I'm moving now. Still anxious, but um, I think I'm doing some good work sometimes. And then as a client? I think once I started doing the inner child work, things started clicking pretty quickly. Because again, just being given skills wasn't super effective for me because I was like, but I can't get myself to do them. I know I should do this and that, but why won't I do it? I still have a fight with myself about doing the dishes because I don't want to be responsible for anything. How am I going to get myself to be responsible for my own healing? And so once we incorporated those very critical inner child voices that I was living with, that started to make a lot more sense of how to integrate and actually use it in my life. And these are going to be kind of non sequitur questions, but what was, yeah, what was your experience with the emotional fallout when you realized, oh, my stuff is all fucked up and there's names for these things? I mean, grad school was a really interesting experience because the focus was not on grades. It was on doing your own emotional work such that when you show up for your clients, you are ready to hold them. It was like emotional muscle building. So a lot of our assignments were reflecting. I remember there was one where we had to write a whole paper on what our role is in a group that we're a part of. Obviously, I chose my family and I wrote about what role I played and how that affected things. And it was assignments like that happening so often that I was like, ah, shit, some things are going to have to change because you can't unknow it. And so I think once I had like a year or so of classes and really realized for me to be a good therapist, I can't be playing this role anymore in any setting of holding everything together. I have to let things drop. I have to let people figure things out for themselves. I can't just be getting involved in friendships, relationships, family dynamics where I'm sacrificing myself to keep other people okay. And that incongruence was slowly killing me and I didn't realize it. So I think that was huge for me of realizing, okay, I need to figure out boundaries and not just in like a, a small way of saying no, I need to change the dynamics of pretty much every dynamic I'm in. So that was a huge part of grad school that I'm really glad that they emphasized of like, this isn't just about schoolwork. This isn't just about how to pass your licensing exam. This is about how to become a more actualized version of yourself so that when you're dealing with these heavy, heavy things, they are not going to make you crumble. Yeah, it sounds like a, an emotional boot camp, honestly. It was. It was. I was like, okay, I'm just paying 70 grand for therapy. That's like what this is. I'm happy it worked. And on that thread, one of my questions was, how did your family respond to you becoming a therapist? And especially when you started doing this kind of work and going, 
no, 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 we don't do that anymore. I mean, I had some experiences of people who were way too excited that I was a therapist because they thought they could use that. And then other people who were very unhappy with it. The person I was dating at the start of grad school did not like the fact that I was going to be a therapist. And he viewed it as, you know, the Jedi mind tricks of stop psychoanalyzing me. This is not what I want. And I was like, I'm not. That's not what I'm doing. This is just how my brain works. So I think there was a lot of different opinions of what my being a therapist meant, which is so shitty because it's a job. It's not my life. I don't know. It's like saying, well, I don't want to be friends with you because you're a teacher. I don't want you to be teaching me anything. It felt like being put on a pedestal that I didn't want to be on. But I think in terms of my family responding, they were like super on board with me being a therapist because they knew they were skills that I had because they watched me use them. Also, like my mother has always been very supportive of any career path I chose. She was like, do whatever you want. Just don't do something that's going to make you miserable. So her and my brother were both really supportive of me doing it. There weren't any negative reactions. There was definitely a learning curve when I started being like, hey, guys, um, our dynamic is like real fucked up and we all need to fix shit. That took a little bit of time. And I think it was something that like everyone was like, yeah, this would be great if it happened. But the amount of work that it took was very messy, as is any changing of dynamics. There was a really big learning curve of like me stepping down from that place of holding things together and everything was just falling. And that was very hard for the family. But I think over time, it ended up being built back up into a much healthier thing. It was just the time period of everyone trying to figure out like, okay, well, if you're not doing that role, that means I can't do this role anymore, which means now I have to change. And so that was, I think, really hard. Hopefully the end result is getting closer to something that puts less weight on you. I imagine that's very similar to say police, right? Where, oh, I'm smoking pot. Are you going to arrest me? It's just you don't get to actually be a person sometimes. And that's one of the occupational hazards of the job is that everyone views you as your occupation versus you as a person. But at the same time, there's also, for many, there's something in you that blends really well to that job, such as your ability to listen. So it's always finding that balance and and working those boundaries. And so my last question, and it's not an easy one, what's your view on your past and all of your experiences nowadays? That's a good question. It's still pretty complicated. The traumas that I have experienced and the life experiences I've had have made for a really complicated soup of like issues. So I'm much more able at this point to view my past as a thing that happened as it did, rather than something I'm like, I wish this hadn't happened, or I regret this so much, or that bitterness that I think I used to live with of why did these people just get this? Why do I have to go through this? Really, this couldn't have been enough. I had to have this too. Like bitterness and resentment were my my best friends for a while. And I think I've done a lot of work to recognize that other people's joys and ease are not the problem and that I am capable of adding more joy and play and relaxation and belonging to my life that doesn't erase things that have happened in the past, but does allow me to sit in the goodness of things, even if there's a chance things are going to go wrong again in the future. I think I used to really struggle with, well, what's the point? Because I have all of this shit I'm carrying around. How am I ever going to have things differently? Because the second I get comfortable, something bad's going to happen again. And like, I think I've just gotten way better at rolling with it. I'm like, yeah, life's kind of absurd. So it's it's possible something terrible is going to happen today or tomorrow or whenever. And that's okay because that doesn't take away from right now being good. So I think I'm, because of that, able to view my past more as a thing that's happened that 
well, several things that have happened that have caused a lot of misery and pain. And also, I think I found a way to utilize that pain to the most effective extent possible and been able to hold space for others as a result and also for myself, show up for myself in ways that I would have needed when I was younger. So I think I think of it now as just a, a nice little sad box of memories that have helped me, but that I also don't need to live in anymore. I can't think of a better way to end it. That was fantastic. And that concludes this episode of Therapy is My Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing so you never miss an update. Once again, thanks for tuning in. The content discussed on this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not act as a replacement for therapy. Although we may share tools that have worked for us and talk about symptoms that we've experienced, it is not meant to be used for diagnostic purposes and does not constitute medical advice.